Blog Talk Radio. Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly, and I am the Minnesota Ambassador for NASCA. I'm your host for this evening. My co-host is uh, Dr. Nancy, and we are on scan number 3298. Um, I'm excited to introduce uh, to you our topic for this evening. However, first, I'd like to let you know that here at NASCA, we have a single purpose, which is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse and presenting facts showing that child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, we were on uh, scan number 3298. And uh, if you'd like to be a panel this evening, please call 646-595-2118. And uh, Dr. Uh, Nancy is um, getting uh, the names of the people that are on. And we would like to um, um, keep, uh, um, make sure everybody has a chance uh, to join in the discussion. Um, the, um, the topic I've uh, picked for tonight is um, the effects of domestic violence on children. And the reason why I picked this topic is that October is Domestic Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. And... Uh, as we focus on uh, domestic violence and that relationship, um, we hope that anybody that's in domestic violence situation um, will get help and will escape. We don't even call it left my abuser. It's escaped from my abuser because that's what it is. And I escaped from many abusers and fortunately was able to take my children with me and get them out to safety as well. So many children exposed to violence in the home are also victims of physical abuse. Children who witness domestic violence or are victims of abuse themselves are at serious risk for long-term physical and mental health problems. Children who witness the violence between parents 
and well, also other relationships that they may see, may also be at greater risk of being violent in their future relationships. If you are a parent who has experienced abuse, it could be difficult to know how to protect. And just the fact that um, um, somebody um, or children that um, live in homes um, uh, have so many uh, experiences, and that's kind of what I want to talk to talk about tonight. And one of these is that um, children that are witnessing it um, can be very, very afraid for the abuser, and that causes trauma. And uh, there are so many different uh, things that a child can uh, do, and I want to kind of explore that. So, um, again, this is a discussion show. So um, I'm going to um, open mics, and uh, uh, let's... Uh, we can have a discussion, but um, please put your mic on mute if you're not speaking, and uh, let's take turns and uh, have a wonderful discussion this evening. And Dr. Nancy is my co-host. Would you like good to Good evening, say? everyone. Yes, good evening, everyone. Um, you know, it's definitely an honor to be here tonight. Again, we're on scan number 3298. And if you'd like to be a part of the panel tonight, you can call 646-595-2118. Your host tonight is Ms. Victoria, and I'm the co-host, Dr. Nancy. So it was a pleasure to be here. We have a few people uh, that joined us tonight. We have um, Mr. Phillip, and we have Dr. Romo. Uh, he's been a guest in the past as well. So really looking forward to hearing from him. Uh, definitely, you know, this topic of child abuse or domestic violence and how it could affect children is near and dear to my heart. Um, I experienced and witnessed um, abuse in, in my home at one point and saw my mom get abused. That was very difficult. Uh, so when it comes to domestic violence and the effects that it has on children, uh, I definitely can understand. Um, a lot of these abuse patterns, again, as I went through it myself as a child with violence, um, there is post-traumatic stress disorder that can be attached to it, nightmares. Some children may be uh, wetting the bed late, later in age, um, and there may be a lot of aggression, aggressive behavior. They may be aggressive with adults or with other children uh, at school. And so you may see them acting out some of these abusive patterns. Um, some of the kids, they may experience depression, and they may experience um, health problems like obesity and um, heart disease and things like that. So, um, you know, this is an open panel, so I just want to make sure we all get a chance to talk about this. But um, thank you for opening up this uh, topic because there's a lot of anxiety that comes from experiencing abuse at home. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I know I, I experienced uh, abuse in my home. My grandparents were screaming all the time. and I mean, I always felt on edge like I was walking on eggshells. And every once in a while, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I just run out the door, run across the field that was uh, right next to the woods and just lay down right before the field. And then I would get up and walk into the woods and just sit there for like two or three hours and, you know, until I could just like clear my head and just feel like I was with nature. And I don't know, I just felt really protected in the woods. And it's amazing the kind of coping skills that we develop 
um, to um, escape from um, violence and uh, um, just, you know, the the trauma of it all. Right. So um, right. we can... Um, yeah, uh, nature is I heard, nature, right? Uh, right, right. right. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, I have a similar experience, um, ladies. Um, during my childhood, my mum was a volcano. She was she owned all the anger, and she would explode. And it's like I got beaten whether I was good or bad if I got in range. So mum had all the anger. Um, but to witness domestic violence, like I'd be up in bed, and dad would come home from work and mum would lash into him and I've even seen, I even remember her beating him up with the vacuum cleaner. Now dad could have knocked her to the floor with one blow but he never struck back because a man doesn't hit a woman, you know. And so that, and and then when dad committed himself to a, um, a mental institution when I was about six, the war carried on between mum and my elder brother. So I used to sleep, go to bed most nights, like fully dressed, ready to open the window and slide down the drain pipe and get away from it. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, that, that was a, a horrific time. Gladly, um, through the work I've done with my own childhood um, trauma, um, I was eventually able to forgive Mm-hmm. Uh, mom, and um, how did you know, how did you cope with that, Bob? It, how'd you cope with it at the time? Because kind of would like to know a little bit about that with uh, us being adults, right? Was jump you? Yeah. How'd you cope with well, it at the time? At the time, I had in the house. I had a safe place upstairs, and this is a twenty-four roomed house, and we had a, a huge airing cupboard where all the blankets and towels were kept, with a hot water cylinder. And so I used to open the door and climb up on the shelves and hide behind the um, the hot water um, heater oh and cover, cover myself with, um, with towels and blankets. And the other way I protected myself was in the morning after I'd um, had my breakfast, I'd be out, I'd, I'd go outside and get a dog skipper and we'd spend the whole day in the in the woodlands, you know, building tree dens or exploring foxholes or just being in mm-hmm. nature. And I, I spent, you know, from dawn till dusk out in nature whenever I could yeah. just to get away from my mum who was, was always exploding. Sometimes mm-hmm. she was nice and that was scary because I, I didn't know. It was like I got sucked in and yeah. got sucked in and got sucked in. But if I got too close... Yeah, so that was a real, um, I I hate to say the word, but it was a real mindfuck, you know, it it was really (laughs) crazy making. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's move on where we all can go. That's real. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dr. Nancy. No, I was saying that's real. I'm sorry that you had to use that word, but yeah, it's very confusing. Okay, that's all. Dr. Romero or um, Romo, I'm sorry, or uh, Philip, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I can join you in 
Um, I mean, there's several immediate impacts of growing up in that kind of environment. Um, I'll name a couple, maybe a couple at a time. Um, and then later on, actually, I have some uh, thoughts actually from a, a book that someone just gave me called Trauma Stewardship um, that talks about self-care and some really good uh, questions. But um, so I grew up with, yeah, a violent alcoholic dad and very unpredictable, but, you know, generally we expect violence. And um, for the most part, you know, this idea of feeling helpless or hopeless, you know, just being invisible, you know, being quiet, actually, you know, hiding um, was a, a short-term coping strategy. Um, and we grew up with the duplex, grandparents in the front house, <clears throat> my family in the back house, and so my grandmother's blind, so one by one, you know, the older kids would live in that front house. And when I was in there, then I would hear, you know, the dishes breaking or the screaming. And, um, and so I would, like, race back to try to insert myself to protect others, but really mm. um, not able to really think about myself. So so that hypervigilance was, you know, one uh, com- impact immediately. Um, mm-hmm. And thinking about you know, everyone else, right? uh, thinking uh, the unrealistic thought that uh, if I could only do good enough, right? Somehow that that would, you know, child's magical thinking that would mm-hmm. improve the dad's behavior. He wouldn't be upset at something how uh, what I thought I was doing, even though I was doing nothing wrong. So that kind of response to feeling helpless and hopeless was like to try to be the perfect kid um, and at the same time hide um, and at the same time be hypervigilant. And yeah. wetting the bed, somebody mentioned that in the basketball team. Yeah, I had no words as a younger kid and it was embarrassing, but that was one way that um, you know, my body was reacting to all of that. Mm-hmm. that uh, you know, I thought it was something it was my problem. Yeah. It's up there. Yeah. I went my bed until I was 13. And my grandfather even went to the point, my grandparents were, my grandfather even went to the point of taking a uh, chair and cutting a hole in it and putting a bucket in there so I could wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom. And, of course, that wasn't the greatest idea because I was still wetting my bed. But, you know, um, hopefully nowadays people are more aware. And I didn't realize until I became an adult and started working on these issues that that is one of the signs, you know, so this awareness is really, really important for us to get this information out. Um, I worked in a battered women's shelter and uh, um, where it's helping battered women and it was hard enough for them to get over the shame and blame that they, they did to themselves, um, you know, for, for staying in a relationship. And then you add on, you know, that the children that witnessed it, are survivors of abuse and I would get, well, he never hit them or, you know, he never sexually abused them or this or that. And I says, well, they are still victims of abuse, of child abuse. Then more shame and blessing is being added on. And it's really important for me to say that, you know, um, we need to put the responsibility back on the abuser. You know, they're the ones that's causing this violence and, and uh, not to blame the victims. Uh, that is so important. 
Um, I don't know how many times I've heard, why doesn't she just leave? Or what is she doing to her children? Instead of what is the abuser doing, you know, to her or him? I don't want to just say her, um, you know, or the children. And uh, again, I think the responsibility needs to go where the responsibility should have always been. And then I know other children who have tried to protect um, whoever was getting abused and ended up doing some kind of violence or to, even to the point of killing the other one and end up in jail or, you know, labeled as, you know, a delinquent or whatever. And, and that follows them. And their heart was in the right place, you know, because they thought the other parent was going to get killed. And that is a horrible place to put a child. Again, the, the blame goes back on the abuser. And we got Philip on the line as well. Philip, would you like to join the conversation? Um, no, not right now. Okay, well, I'm glad that you uh, came to the show. Um, and uh, Dr. Nancy, would you like to say anything or anyone else want to? Chime in? Yeah, no, I um I just definitely agree with the fact that, you know, the child witnessing that type of abuse is very traumatic. I remember I see my mom get beat and get pushed downstairs. Um I had to walk with her from the house to the police station. She had a black eye. I used to have to call the police screaming she was dating someone who was a counselor. Okay. He was a counselor, and um, he used to abuse my mother. It was very traumatic. I used to be so sad and so angry. Um, I never, uh, you know, some people, I've met some people that they went through that, and they became victims of abuse, but it was for me, like, I dare someone to put their hands on me because I'm going to fight back. Like, um, I just thank God, you know, I, I did have a couple of people try, so I have had people attempt and have crossed that line with me, but I never um, stayed. Um, but definitely, it's just so hard uh, for children to see that, because I do know a lot of children who do also become victims themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's the other thing, um, that, that a lot of kids learn um, the relationship, how relationships work. And uh, I can remember my mom saying at one point, um, I decided that I'm never going to be a victim again. But then she turned around and became an abuser. And, you know, um, she's seen two choices, victim or abuser. And she didn't see healthy relationships and unless we really you know, look into what is a healthy relationship. If we don't see that as a role model, um, which I never saw, um, it's hard to know what a healthy relationship is. Yeah. I would like to respond to the co-host's comment, please. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a bit of a time delay here. Um, Yeah, it was, oh, dear. Um, like the message I got from mum was mum is always beating me therefore she does not love me therefore I'm unlovable and it's all my fault and then thankfully um, I came across John Bradshaw on his work on the inner child and it explained to me how uh, I took he, he, he describes the family as a, a, a mobile you know that's um, hanging from a ceiling and it's got all these things hanging off it and there's mum and there's dad and there's all the kids. And 
because of the dysfunction of my uh, mum and dad, I took on the role of being the perfect child. So um, I wasn't allowed to express anger. I could only be ever nice and pleasant because mum owned all the anger. And I always got top grades in school. And I was, you know, I was like the perfect kid, but I wasn't being real. I wasn't being me. So I just thank the day that I came across John Bradshaw and his work on um, healing that situation. Because it's, um, you know, I wasn't being the whole me. And um, I did a program a few, 25 years ago about um, um, getting in touch with your feelings. And most of my depression was based around the anger that I'd swallowed from the way I was treated as a kid. And letting mm-hmm. my body get, get, get rid of the anger. And it was, a, quickly, it was a simple process. The people in the group just put some um, cushions on the floor and some telephone books and a baseball bat. And they said, Bob, just remember and get back in touch with the anger of your childhood and take it out on these phone books. And I'll tell you what, in about 10 minutes, I was absolutely exhausted, worn out. But this doesn't, these dozen telephone books were just a pile of paper mache. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that, that's how I got it yeah. out. Okay, I'll shut up now. <laughs> um, Dr. Romo, would you like to chime in? Yeah, no, I'm glad that uh, Bob, you bring up Bradshaw. He talks about the family system. And, you know, each of us, uh, well, I can think of, you know, my own coping mechanism, the own impact that I had. But um, I think as a system, you know, I had siblings. There were six kids. And one, I think, became like the one who, who had uh, whatever ailments, you know, if, if not in early childhood, uh, certainly later. Um, I can think of the one who, you know, kind of minimized, well, my mom minimized. She was the one who was receiving the bulk of, of the violence. But, you know, we witnessed that. And, um, for her to minimize it, um, kind of led to, to us as well, not knowing how to, um, yeah, how to really take in, you know, the reality of that. But there was certainly a lot of shame, you know, that came with uh, suppressing that. I mean, Bob, you mentioned, you know, the depression from suppressing anger. I mean, I think, you know, suppressing shame also uh, has that impact. Um, yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. And so I think, you know, different family members as well, everybody has a different way of expressing, you know, the, the impact. Um, so, well, and, and we thought at the time that it was personal. We didn't realize it was a system. You know, it's like I thought, you know, that uh, I was just a harder worker and, a, you know, a smart kid. And, uh, and I didn't get in trouble where someone else did, you know, or... Uh, yeah, someone else was the one who, who felt everything and just kind of internalized it and became the quiet one, you know, who lost her voice. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a system. We, it's important to look at. Dr. Nancy, you want to make some comments? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you know, a lot of times, when we go through abuse, we can lose our voice. We can go 
deep within ourselves, um, especially if you have that love and that loyalty for the person who may be suffering from mental illness, maybe the abuser, you know, it's like you're trying to protect them, but you're living in hell. And um, it was really difficult because um, I saw my father being abused in the past, um, never with my mom because he was with someone else when I saw him being abuser. But then I've seen my mother be abused. Um, and I can definitely see, like, when I'm working with children, and that's why I'm in the area doing the work that I do. That's why we, a lot of us, are in the areas doing the work that we do because we've been through so much where we're able to have empathy and love uh, for those children, okay, and, and see ourselves in some of those situations and know that we needed those healthy and loving adults to support us and, and guide us through those times. But um, I can definitely agree that many times we go inside of ourselves and, you know, sometimes it could be a very lonely place, you know. It can be some people are very sheltered. They, they don't have a lot of friends. They're not sociable. Um, they may deal with anxiety, um, you know, and then when we talk about bullying and all of that, some of the kids get picked on because they are not sociable. Um, so it just creates like a whole cycle of effects that really do affect, that really, <laughs> excuse me, you guys, I'm getting over a cold, <clears throat> that really do affect us uh, in a bigger in a bigger spectrum. So I, um, I'm just agreeing with what I'm hearing tonight because I can relate, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom gave, uh, um, sent me and my two brothers from Louisiana to Minnesota on my first birthday. Later on, she told me I kissed you on the forehead and said, this is the best birthday present I'll ever give you. And later on, when I moved out to live with her, um, I asked her, why did you give us up? She said, because I had a feeling you were in danger. So before she uh, passed away, um, I was. she always said she was a bad mom because she gave up her kids. And I said, you know, you were really a good mom. And I says, you know, you followed your motherly intuition. You, weren't, you couldn't really put a finger on, you know, why you felt we were in danger. But if um, he had sexually abused me before a year old and uh, had he had me in his grips all that time, um, I don't know what my life would have been like. Uh, he came back after me when I was 15 and kept continuing to come back after me. And I had many abusers after that. And I always never, ever felt safe, ever. And uh, it, it took me a long time to feel any kind of safe to trust anybody. Um, I found out that my mom, he used to beat her unconscious all the time. And uh, the only time he ever took her to the doctor, and this is graphic, is when her eye was hanging out of her head because he beat her so hard. And, of course, when she went to the hospital to get her eye fixed, um, she told him that she fell against the cupboard and uh, hit her eye, hit her face. And uh, so later years, you know, her eye was kind of half open, and she always said she had a lazy eye. But, you know, um, the secrets, you know, keeping those secrets is just, to me, just amazing um, what kind of secrets people could even go into their grave um, that many survivors of uh, domestic violence never, ever talked about it and never, ever escaped, you know. And uh, it, it's just 
awareness and prevention is just has come really far because she said, you know, there were no battered women's shelters where you could go or go with your kids. They weren't, you know, they weren't in existence in 1963. Uh, So, you know, things have changed. Um, Still not great. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, a lot is different and a lot. We need to do a lot of work. So that's kind of what the discussion that um, I'm glad that we're having right now. Can I jump in? Absolutely. Thanks, Sue. Um, I just came back from a symposium uh, with the traumatic intent reduction facilitators and trainers, and one person brought up some a recent um, article, some research about how when when we're exposed to ongoing violence, for example, you know, uh, traumatic incidents, chronic stressors, that that becomes the norm. You know, our systems become wired to that. And, and then when we're actually in a, a stable kind of place, that there's something in, in the way that we're wired that rejects that. It's, it's upsetting. Right? And, um, it sounded like the reverse of being triggered by something traumatic. It was like being triggered by somehow something that was good. Um, and I just, you know, offer that as like another long-term impact of witnessing, you know, being in that environment where we're absorbing, you know, not just what happens to us, but what happens around us, you know, and then what, how we internalize all that. Um, so that, that really just jumped out at me. Um, how how powerful it is to to have normal be you know an ongoing state of of disruption or unpredictability or violence. Yeah, and then you know you point out there were no women to me. I wish I wish I had a normal childhood, and then I tell them the only thing that's normal is the setting on the washing machine. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. people want normal. I wonder what normal even is, you know, mm-hmm. or I, I try to say a healthy relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. working toward having healthy relationships, not, you know, um, intimate, well, intimate in the way mm-hmm. that, you know, friendship and uh, mm-hmm. just being able to trust mm-hmm. has been um, a really big, big thing. Yeah. But your, your point about there were no shelters back then in 63, because, and that makes total sense to me, because like PTSD and the whole world of, Trauma really didn't start to get some language until the 70s with the Vietnam vets, or 60s Vietnam vets, and then with the 70s women movement. And it was like, how come there's these similar, you know, PTSD symptoms and linking it to domestic violence? And then there was need, you know, more support and beginning of shelters and programs. So there is more. There's a lot more that needs to be done. But there is a shift. There is a bit more collective, maybe consciousness, maybe little bits of critical mass, you know, that, mm-hmm. that are more compassionate. Yeah. I was working with a uh, battered women's shelter um, out here in Minnesota when I escaped from my son's father and uh, with my son, who was an infant. And uh, they had just come out with power and control wheel which um, is out of the Duluth model. And I was working with that shelter as well out here in Duluth, Minnesota at the time. And, uh, you know, they had come out with power and control will 
which really talks about um, domestic violence and uh, identifies different things on the power and control wheel. And uh, then they came out with uh, the equality wheel, which I thought was really interesting because I could identify with all the things on the power and control wheel. But, you know, then again, I go back to what is a healthy relationship. So they had the equality wheel. And then they came out with the child abuse one and positive parenting. And they came up with a society one that talked about institutions and different things. And, and it's just kind of growing. And uh, you can find that on just looking up the Duluth um, uh, model uh, power and control wheels. And there's just a whole bunch of them now. <laughs> They've come up with a lot. And uh, it has been argued that um, that it, it doesn't do justice to man because um, on some of them it, it'll say he um, did this and he did that. And uh, there, there's uh, uh, kind of unequal with that. But it was developed by the Better Women's Shelter. So that, that's why it has that. And uh, a lot of people don't know that if you're in a domestic violence situation, um, if you're a man, you can contact the Better Women's Shelter. And I talked to the one out here and uh, said, how can we get that information out to men? Um, they do have many resources for men. But when you say call the battered women's shelter, which I did for one man, he said, why would I call the battered women's shelter? <laughs> I'm not a battered woman. And uh, um, I think it needs to be, uh, I don't know how we can do it, but it needs to be um, more, I don't know what the word is, out there <laughs> that men can call and, and get support too. And I know there's some more men's organizations going on now than there ever was before. I went to one battered women's conference and there were men there. And uh, the one the one man says, I, um, I'm really glad that um, the battered women's movement and sexual assault movement has, you know, started to put these concepts and things together. And, uh, you know, we need to follow suit and we thank you for like, you know, like so they don't have to recreate the wheel. And that's the one thing that, you know, by sharing resources and information and, and things like that, uh, we don't have to keep recreating the wheel. We can, we can start from these jump off points. And we've got, um, I guess Bob left us, so we have Dr. Nancy and Dr. Romo still on. Anyone mm-hmm. want to continue the conversation? Yeah. Well, just uh, Sorry. appreciate you. Oh, go ahead. The just you know the acknowledgement with compassion that there are lots of men uh, who are not just uh, perpetrators, right? I mean, who have been the victims of violence and trauma and sexual assault, and um, it's a, it's it's a complex time of change, um, and it's messy. But I, I'm really glad that there are. I see a shift in, in generations of men um, being able to uh, be vulnerable, you know, go against all the conditioning about, you know, cutting off feelings and, um, you know, be, yeah, being always like strong, prepared and all that, not to take away from that's a, a part of identity, but um, what a huge shift. You know, and then I think more and more, um, just you know, partners in healing. Um, so I just want to you know 
yeah, acknowledge that. And uh, I was a part of a group from SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Agency, um, probably 10 years ago, where it was called Males for Trauma Recovery. And uh, it, that was kind of the discussion, like, you know, there's when men heal, then that should impact a lot more when men, you know, re-examine the violence that they've inherited and have perpetuated. Um, then, you know, that has implications beyond those individuals. Um, so I think we're still in a very uh, violent and kind of toxic masculinity in a world um, but I am hopeful to see the change. Absolutely. Um, if I may just add um, to to the discussion right now, um, you know, a lot of times when these kids experience uh, or witness this abuse, they start to believe that this is uh, what a healthy relationship is. <laughs> and... Um, they start to normalize unhealthy relationships. So when they become uh, young, you know, teenagers and start dating, they enter into abusive relationships, and they really start to believe that that's normal behavior. So a lot of times you'll see, like, young girls, they're dating a guy, and he's aggressive, he's yelling at her, he might shake her, and she's like, well, that shows me that he loves me. You know, I've experienced that as a teenager, little stupid stuff, you know, like little stalkers and little things that made me believe that that was love, right? Uh, and that comes from being taught unhealthy patterns of behaviors in relationships. I don't know if any of you have experienced that or have anything to say in regards to that area for the teenagers that are dating. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember the John Wayne, you know, movies. And John Wayne always smacked around women. And, you know, they didn't want nothing to do with them, but he smacked them around, and then they realized they loved him. And, you know, these are the types of, (laughs) you know, things that I saw growing up on TV. You know, Um, what what a crazy mixed message there. And like you said, the stalking, uh, you know, oh, he really loves you, you know, following you around, he's insisting that you, you know, go out with them, even though he's saying no, 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 no. And that whole idea of, you know, um, when you say no, it really means yes, you just have to have some convincing. (laughs) And the convincing can get really violent. So, um, you know, also some of the implications that, Sometimes, you know, the teenagers end up dealing with, you know, not just teenagers, but a lot of people, they have sleeping problems. Um, They may um, have night terrors. They may deal with chronic illness, a lot of pain, Um, definitely sleep uh, difficulties, nightmares, like I said. Or they may just be very aggressive. Um, And you may find yourself having a hard time concentrating and definitely dealing with um, anxiety. A lot of the um, children that I've worked with who (coughs) have witnessed abuse or been abused, they deal with a lot of separation anxiety. Um, I don't know if you guys have witnessed any of that and may have some insight on that. Mm. Well, 
I agree. All the things you listed are, are really um, manifestations of you know, taking in that uh, trauma. Um, and I see it in not directly firsthand. I used to work in the K-12 world, but uh, now just knowing about, you know, even at the elementary level, you know, more and more kids, you know, talking about separation anxiety who are runners, you know, who have to have people at the gate because um, there's so much anxiety and so many kids, you know, I don't know how to, you know, it's anecdotal, you know, how many kids come to the office with stomach aches and with all these things because it could be things happening there in the school, but it's also backed up, no doubt, by other ways that kids don't feel safe, where kids are afraid. Um, And and I think um, recently, of course, the pandemic put a whole layer of fear um, into uh, our, our kids. Um, the separation and anxiety, that's all very real. And I think all these discussions now, you know, we can see through the understanding of how the brain develops and how uh, stressors and stress hormones rewire the brain so that people are less, you know, wired to kind of observe and have a, a, a moment before reacting. Um, and so I think, you know, ideally, of course, people have stability so that and coping mechanisms growing up, and that's reinforced by parents. So we know when the parents don't have that, then they pass on what they have, which is often, you know, those stressors. Um, but yeah, I see it indirectly. I hear it indirectly. Um, and I was recently on Monday and Tuesday. I was supposed to have a a workshop for. K-12 school leaders, you know, whether they're administrators at district level or school site level or teachers. And uh, it was was a large group uh, called the California uh, School Leadership Academy who organized it. And we we had a a group and then many people canceled. And and I thought um, there's so much going on that these teachers or directors can't get away. There's just so much stress. It's so much harder than when I was teaching, when I was an administrator. So I think all those things are true and and very present. Um, And not just because of families now, but even magnified because of the bigger stressors that the kids come, you know, live with. That was good. And you're and you're so right about that. Definitely, you know, a lot of times you'll have a kid who's acting out, who's hitting himself, hitting other people, um, and you're trying to figure out like what's going on. This this kid's being fresh, you know, something. But a lot of times you don't think, okay, where are they getting this behavior from? Could they be witnessing something? Could they be abused? Um, a lot of times we'll to judge the child's behavior but not really um, think about the fact that that child is witnessing something that's causing this this adverse behavior. And so um, getting a chance to kind of ask a different set of questions and have a lot more empathy. And now that we, that we have knowledge, you know, we have training, we have these groups, we have these support groups, we're able to learn what the, what questions we could ask to help 
these kids come forward and not feel alone because that's a really lonely place to be. Um, So some of the other um, effects of children experiencing or witnessing domestic violence besides the wet um, bedwetting would be, um, you know, you may notice an increased sensitivity. They may cry a lot. Um, You know, they definitely a lot of times have a hard time falling asleep. Um, We did talk about the separation anxiety Uh, A lot of times they have a drive, like they lose their drive to participate in activities, whether it's in school or at home or with friends. Um, And many times we may notice that they have a lot of, their grades may be low. Um, That's something that can bring a red flag when you see, well, that's not just one thing, but this is just sometimes a couple of things that you may notice from that. Um, they may feel guilty and blame themselves for the abuse. Like I said, you know, sometimes they have that relationship with the abuser and they feel guilty for telling or anything like that. But um, when they do get abused, they blame themselves, like, you know, like they deserve it type of thing. Um, And then they get in trouble more often. They may blur out things in school. They may blur out things in school. Um, or just constantly getting in trouble. You constantly hear their name being called, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, we talked about some of the physical signs, which was, you know, they may have stomach aches and headaches and complain about those things. Um, but definitely, you know, when they're like teenagers, we see that a lot of times they'll be missing school, skipping school. I went through a stage where I was acting up, skipping school, fighting uh, with, classmates, or even with family members, right? Um, And, again, we're still, when we look at them in the teenage years, they may have low self-esteem, and they may find it difficult to make friends. Um, That was a little awkward for me sometimes, even though I love people, that long-term connection was hard for me. Um, And then, again, um, just engaging in risky behaviors, uh, where they may just start using drugs and alcohol early, and um, yeah, those are some of the some of the side effects. Dr. Nancy, we have um, another guest on uh, Judy, and I talked to her a little bit on the other line, and she'd like to share uh, some of her experience with the listener. Great, uh, Judy, are you on? Yep, I'm on. Hi, everyone. Okay. Welcome um, to the show. Thank you. I um, One of the first memories I had was my um, dad and mom in an altercation, fighting. And it seemed like all through my life living at home, it was like at least two or three times a year. I don't know why that was, but um, watched some horrible... Um, Fit, uh, you know, fights with them, bleeding, and smashing windows, and my, mostly my mother smashing the windows. But um, um, and then my dad started taking it out on me, and mm-hmm. um, I'm the oldest, and um, there's six kids under. Well, I'm the oldest of six children, and I always held it in, and I always wanted to be the good girl, and. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but it, but I wouldn't talk about it, 
you know, I just, I held it in because I did. I, I thought it was all my fault. I was, thought I was responsible for my parents because I had relatives that would tell me that I was responsible for their relationship and how broken it was. Um, okay. And um, I'm sorry. then I got older and I seemed to meet, um, thank God, my husband was not an abuser. He's been very good to me. Um, but I continued to meet other people with... Um, similar personalities to my parents. And so, again, I would internalize everything. I would just take it because I kept thinking, well, it's me. It's got to be me. Or I was always um, still in my adult years trying to baby my younger siblings when they needed someone to talk to or they needed something. I really tried hard. And every once in a while, I would bring it up to them. Do you remember this? And they don't. They, They said that, you know, they had very good childhoods, and my one sister said that um, in kind of a nasty way, she said, well, if my kids want to write about me when I'm dead, because both my parents are deceased now, and they were both yeah. very tragic deaths. Mm. Um, and I think even though I'm not talking to my my sibling, um, my, a couple of my siblings I'm not um, talking to, because I haven't been invited to things, Um, and I'm kind of like blackballed in a way, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And um, is it because they're telling you secrets, or you're you're not willing to bury it anymore? Um, they just they just want me to be quiet because I got a I have a book that's going to be published coming out in February, and um, so they're um. I think that's what really bothers me. And some days I'm fine with it. And then other days it's like just um, because I love them and I took care of them and I felt I was responsible for them and tried to like, you know, a part of my, a part of my thinking was if I'm here, then I can protect them and I'll get the abuse, not them. That was, that was so sick thinking, but it's just the way it was normal, I think, under those circumstances, if you want to talk about normal, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) I think think that's what bothers me is just um, because it almost feels like I'm being abused all over again. Does that make sense? Yes. When I uh, started speaking out in 1986, um, I was um, telling my grandmother that I was talking about you know, um, domestic violence and sexual abuse that had happened to me and things. And she goes, why are you talking about all that dirty stuff? You know, and, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's how I felt so long dirty, you know, and all that shame, mm-hmm. was just overwhelming mm-hmm. shame, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I just, I kept, you know, just talking about it. And, uh, and one day my grandma came to me and told me about, how she had been attacked in the woods on her way to school and raped and she hit the guy over the head with a rock. And um, she always kept looking in the paper to see, you know, if he had uh, shown up in the paper dead because she Mm -hmm. never saw him again. And, uh, you know, um, she might've went to her grave again. I said, you know, like earlier, these, you know, people go to their graves with these, these secrets. And uh, I also, I'm not writing a book myself, but I've got two women that are women's studies professors uh, writing a book. And I know I've um, heard a lot of people that are writing books 
that the whole family will turn against them um, because the secrets have been ingrained in us for so long that when one person starts to tell the secrets and other family members have been, you know, um, you know, I, I lived in illusion for a long time that everything was fine. I started going to therapy and, you know, I can remember my grandma, you know, being drunk and going out in the middle of the road and, you know, I'm going to kill myself. And I remember being, I don't know, four years old, going out and quote, saving her, you know, and, and therapist mm-hmm. once said, well, you know, that, that wasn't your responsibility and it wasn't your responsibility to um, protect the other children. It was a parent's responsibility to be parents and be healthy parents but, and take care of their children. It wasn't your it responsibility. It was, it was, but it, right. there was nobody that was taking care of them. You know? I know, and that's really sad. I mean, it yeah. shouldn't be. I know it shouldn't be, and, you know, we can say that, but it just shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, these things are still happening, you know, and that's what motivates me. You know, everybody says, you got to stop being so angry. And I says, well, I could be taking my anger and going out and, you know, attacking abusers. Or I could be taking my anger and saying, I want to make changes, you know. Right. And, and a voice for children and a voice for victims of abuse, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Can I jump in? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I really appreciate that idea that... that internalizing this like we can never do enough right take care of other people and absorb protect others absorb whatever is uh, negative going on um that's yeah just one of many of those interpretations that we, we take on because yeah the adults are not able to do that um doggone i had another thought and i thought it was worth sharing but not for that Mm-hmm. Oh, my roommate just came home. <laughs> okay. You oh, know, I'm in my. Thought, I'm in. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, just uh, just to uh, acknowledge and, and join you with that idea. Of, you know, when one person speaks up and um, is willing to face fully or partially what you know has been unspeakable. Yeah, it does re- disrupt the system, and and I got a lot of resistance early on, um, you know, from siblings. You know, why are you bringing this up? You know, it's in the past, and I mean, it's real, real common. But again, that idea of however terrible, you know, a system will settle into a certain level of what is normal, and when someone breaks that, you can expect a lot of resistance and. Um, so I just applaud, acknowledge the difficulty of, of doing that. And then, you know, I know for me, part of speaking up was, was with a vengeance. And so um, my expression was, you know, a lot of rage. And, and I, uh, I think, Victoria, yeah, anger is better than depression, but certainly unpleasant. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's a step mm-hmm. towards being able to be joyful and at peace and, and so on. But, um, yeah, it is a very messy process. And mm-hmm. I look back and I wish I could have been more gracious. Um, I, I just, that's where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell people anger is just another emotion. It's what you do with that emotion, you know, um, it's how you react with that emotion. Any emotion, you know, I don't like to label emotions good or bad. I learned that. And, uh, you know, you're going to have your emotions, but then you're also going to have a point where you can stop and think what is the way to handle this, you know, um, how to handle this emotion. And uh, I used to think there wasn't any choices. <laughs> you know, I've always done it this way. And uh, just, just again, I have to keep even reminding myself today about simple things. I have choices. And one of the choices I just made was to quit smoking. And I've been off cigarettes for nine days now. Good on you. I was telling Nancy before the show, yeah, that I've been off nine days. And the smoking a pack a day, which is 10 bucks a day, so being off uh, cigarettes for nine days is $90. And every month it's 300 And for 365 days in a year, it's $3,650. And so I'm putting all that away, and I'm going to have a nice vacation. Get away from this Minnesota cold weather next year. <laughs> With <somebody laughs> nice. Yeah. nice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to say something about my story. And, um, yeah, um, and about the fear of upsetting um, the people who are abusing me. Um, well, I suppose, luckily, um, in 1992, um, um, I wrote a letter to Mum saying, G'day, Mum. I'm just telling you my story about how I felt as a child growing up in our family. This is not about blame. I'm just telling you my story. And so, with the notepad out, I thought it's going to be two or three pages, and it ended up being like a sticker's wall and piece. But, you know, I just got everything out that I could recall from my childhood. I hated it when you beat me with a carpet sweeper. I hated it when you dangled me by the wrist and beat me with a frying pan. And just got it all out on paper... And then when I come to the end, Mum, I'm just telling you my story. Please tell me yours. This is not about blame. Your loving son, Bobby. And she was alive at the time, back in England. And that was the hardest thing I ever did, was actually post that letter to Mum. And uh, eventually I got a letter back from Mum saying, Oh, Bobby, Bobby, you must think I'm the first mother in the whole world, but I was only doing my very best. And then I wrote back and said, Mum, this is not about blame. Please tell you my story. Because in my own journey, um, I was, God, I hate your mum, you're always beating me, but you've got to love your mum, you've only got one mum. And it was that dichotomy that was tearing my soul apart. So eventually mum wrote back and she told me that she was born in Germany in 1924 between the wars. Her dad was an alcoholic, her mum was a control freak, her cousins were in the SS or they were shot. And so I realised that she too had a very violent and dysfunctional childhood. So by her sharing her story, I could move from hate through understanding back to love. And then I phoned her three days later and she was back in hospital. 
and that was the first time we spoke as mother and son and both crying her eyes out and then three days later she died now that was a beautiful closure and it was like somebody had taken an elephant off my shoulders but um, after that I contacted my mum um, through a spiritual medium who told me stuff that only mum and I knew so I knew this lady was you know fair dinkum and mum was saying Bobby 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 thank you so much for writing that letter because I am now going through the same work with my parents in the beyond and ladies and gentlemen that just blew me away so for me writing by writing that letter I broke my own multi-generational cycle of abuse end of story Thank you, Bob. We've got um, Dr. Nancy, uh, Dr. Romo, or Judy, would you like to add? Um, <clears throat> no, I'm just going to listen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think, you know, what um, Bob brings up is so grounded and uh, so valuable, you know, when we can stand our own and, and and others, we can have compassion, you know, like to that question, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Or why are they doing what they're doing? Like what was behind it? Um, and understanding maybe the, how trauma works. Um, but even without formal understanding, just hearing um, kind of how they got, their coping mechanisms, what they were carrying, how they were suffering, opens up. For me, I know similar with with my dad, um, it was pretty much close to his deathbed. And I'm wondering, Bob, if that wasn't you know a really freeing uh, experience for your mom, so that it allowed her to go in peace. You know, but uh, you know, I, I work with a lot of patients at the end of their lives, and when they can kind of give compassion to themselves and you know, have an understanding of kind of why they got to where they are, you know, with, um, but, you know, with my dad, similar story, having him unpack some of his childhood sadness and his, you know, losses and, um, and made sense. Like, yeah, you passed on what you had. It wasn't good, <laughs> but I, I, uh, I see more of you now. It was, yeah, it was, Understanding and compassion, I think, go a long way. Yeah, my mom, when I was living out in Texas with her, she went ballistic on me and I had to leave. Ended up homeless and my kids got me back to Minnesota in 2010. And I lived out there with with her for a while and things were really crazy. And I had break off communication for a long time with her. And then all of a sudden I got a message on Facebook from somebody who um, knew her and had contact with me as well and said, your mom is living in my backyard in a trailer and she's got no air conditioning. It's middle of the summer in Texas. And uh, she's got five dogs living in there, small little trailer, fleas. Um, it's filthy in there and she's got a feeding tube and won't put the insure in. And she's dying out there. And I didn't know what to do. I couldn't take her. And so I called my kids, and my son arranged for her to come here, and my daughter did respite care for her. And the doctor said um, um, she can't fly. And my daughter said, listen, we've got somebody putting her on the airplane, and 
um, we're getting her right off the airplane. And I'm taking her to my house because I'm doing rest of care for my grandma. You know, my daughter's very smart, and uh, she doesn't take no for an answer. And uh, that was the point where I was able to go over and see her and uh, and do that um, and, you know, um, and talk. And I know a lot of people say, you know, um, I'm not taking no deathbed confession or something like that. But you know what? It, it can really make a difference. Um, I don't know. It, it meant a lot to me where, um, you know, uh, she ended up saying she was sorry for a lot of the, you know, stuff she had done and she wished she could have done different. And, you know, we didn't protect me from my biological father when I was 17. And uh, she had witnessed some, uh, witnessed him raping me and stuff and didn't protect me. And uh, um, at the very end, you know, uh, I feel she made amends. And uh, we cried and held each other and, and uh, spent some final days together before she passed. And uh, to me, that was that was really healing. And so um, to me, it's like, it's it's more than I got, you know, I, I feel really good about that because my biological father, I couldn't have nothing to do with him. I had to stay away from him because I never felt safe until he, I knew he was gone from his earth. And... Um, I found out on Facebook that he had died. My uncle posted it, and I wrote on Facebook that uh, um, I have a freedom that I can't even put into words. That I know he's gone, and uh, I even changed my name um, to go in hiding and to also tell my story because uh, I was out talking um, all over Minneapolis about my battered woman sexual start assault story, being used in systems of prostitution and being an incest survivor, and. Uh, Anyway, um, I didn't want him to find out I was speaking, so I changed my name to Victoria Kelly, and Victoria means victorious. My middle name I kept, which is Ruth, which means spirit, and Kelly means warrior. So my name was Victorious Spirit Warrior, is what it meant. And at the time, I didn't feel like but today I do. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of people that will change your name. And then I was also going to write a book and write in there, um, I'm changing the names to protect the so innocent. <laughs> but uh, but they're, they're both gone now, and my grandparents are gone. And my brother is very outspoken about uh, what happened in our family, and we talk a lot. And he started, he got in recovery um, 37 years ago, and uh, um, starting to talk about his growing up. And he was, my mom got sober um, about a few years after he got sober. And so you know, she was going to the same club and everything that he was at the A, and he was telling a story all the time. And she was so angry. Oh, he's down there. Um, put me down again. He's down there, you know, talking crap about me, whatever. But all he was doing was telling his story, and she just happened to be involved, you know. So there can be a lot of mixed emotions when people are going through their healing process. And he was never able to talk about the sexual abuse. Um, he said he told my mom twice, and she's, she told him, he did not tell me. He said, you know, she has selective memory. And, uh, but, you know, we continued to, to talk about it. When I first, I self-published a book and had him read it, had him come to one of my readings, he left halfway through. And uh, came back to pick me up because he was my ride. And I said, why don't you leave? I felt, you know, 
personal again. <laughs> and he said, I just couldn't hear what my sister went through. And he couldn't read the book because he said uh, he just, he couldn't, you know, when he found out that all the stuff that had happened to me couldn't live together, um, he wanted to go kill him. I says, what good will that do? I says, you'll be in prison. And it's not going to take away the effects or what happened to me, you know. Um, I'd rather have you, you know, be able to support me than, than be in prison. And I think that also, like I was saying about the domestic violence, you know, try to protect people and um, adults that are supposed to be taking care of us. And kids are put into roles that they never should <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think it's really hard for the loved ones to hear the truth, like to hear those stories. It's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, and only because we're ready to walk in our healing, sometimes our family members, they're not ready. You know, they're not ready to face it. And uh, and some people feel a sense of, of um, guilt. Some siblings may feel a sense of guilt. How could... I have been there, and I have noticed that. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, it can be very difficult just hearing it and being a brother and, you know, boys are supposed to protect the sisters, whether, even if they're younger, it doesn't matter. So it's just hard. Um, but thank you for sharing that. I, I wanted to kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, talk a little bit about some of the effects um, or you know, what happens if a child reveals that there's abuse going on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our job as adults, as safe adults, um, is to provide a safe space for for children. I want to make sure I uh, muted myself. But we want to provide a safe space for the young person to share. Um, want to try to keep a mutual-looking face and not, look at them like, you know, make faces while they're talking, but really provide that safe space so that they can share and get it out um, and listen to them, try not to interrupt, because the more you listen, the more they'll speak. Um, always it's good to let them know uh, that they've done the right thing by telling. You know, I, I know many of us have felt guilty for telling, so reassuring them like you're doing the right thing, you know, you telling is the right thing that you're doing. Um, and always remind them that it's not their fault. Always remind them it's, it's not your fault, you know, because a lot of times kids will internalize it, like it's, if they deserved it or it's their fault or they participated in it because they did it a few times and and participated in it. So now they have this guilt that they're part of the abuse, they're part of the consent, and no, you're not. It's not your fault. <clears throat> Listen to them and really try to understand their needs as they're sharing, uh, and do not push, um, you know, do not push the child for answers. Don't press the child for answers. That's why I said, you know, sometimes just let them talk. They'll start telling you. Um, they'll make sure they'll let you know how comfortable they are, um, and try your best never to address the abuser yourself, you know, because the situation could turn volatile and they could just, you know, they can go hurt the family, kill kill the victim. 
So you want to make sure that you try to strategize it with the police if you would like to address it. Um, and then explain what you'll do next to the child. Let them know you're going to get them help from the people, the right people that can help them. A lot of times when kids tell, sometimes they'll try to get you not to tell anyone. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm not going to tell the abuser, but I am going to get help from adults who can help you. Because uh, a lot of times they're scared. They're like, "Who? what's going to happen after this? I don't know what's going to happen after this, but I know that they won't hurt you anymore because we're going to get you help from the right people. Um, and then, you know, report what has been told to you immediately and just try to get help. Try to get help for the child. Report the abuse. That's all for now. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, in here. What I'd like to say is um, for me, um, we're all victims of victims, and if you don't hand it back, you pass it on. And and the, the other little beautiful statement is, hurt people, hurt people. Hey. So for me, people that hurt people don't need incarceration or imprisonment, although that's what they, they expect to be punished because they were punished as children. What they need is love and support and healing, you know. So, yeah, all you need is love, hey. That's where I'm coming from. <laughs> all you need is love. Yeah, but da da Well, I appreciate, you know, as a, a supporter of someone, you know, a child or someone older, who finds you safe enough to share just how critical it is to, to be just a witness, a, a presence without needing to, move it out or, um, yeah just to be present to, to know whatever our own experience is that it, it's not about us you know? um, it's easy for us I think and for people to typically just you know join and, and have a lot of sympathy because of very similar experiences and, um, I, I don't think that's necessary um, and in fact that might think I think it might distract from that person just honoring that they're sharing with you maybe for the first time. So I appreciate the, uh, the kind of guidance that you laid out. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I agree, mate. I agree. For me, it's um, it's empathy, not sympathy. So sympathy tends to keep people back in the victim state, whereas empathy is like honoring, accepting, and validating their own current reality. Anyway, that's just me. Well, I know that my biological father was um, sexually abused by his babysitter. But, you know, he has a resource to get help. He's a resource, a very rich man, uh, very known in the community, in uh, church, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, and he refused to get help. Matter of fact, he said he didn't, uh, you know, he was going to church and stuff and said, you know, I don't care. Um, that I'm going to hell, but you need to obey your father, you know, and he was in that S&M and torture and literally said, um, you know, the only way that I can get off is by seeing you in pain, which he kept having to inflict more and more pain on me. And my therapist said that if I hadn't gotten away from 
and he would have killed me because it kept getting more and more intense. And I uh, got to the point where I was going to give my daughter drugs and myself because it was the only way I felt that we could get away from him because he wanted to take me to Louisiana and marry me and raise my, our, my daughter as our child. And uh, that's back when she was six months old. And uh, so I was scared to death. He told me he was going to lock me in the basement, chain me up, and, you know, always show me pornography, black and white pornography, women chained in basements that were sexual slaves. And he had me sign a sexual slave contract. And so I was scared to death of him, and I was scared to death of my daughter. And that's why I had to keep myself safe. And also, you know, I had to let myself know that, you know, even though I was abused, I had choices and I didn't have to continue that because when I started, I, when I told at 21, I finally escaped, um, I was court ordered to a therapy group because I was quote, was going to abuse my child. And their statistics at the time were 85% of incest survivors will sexually abuse their own children. And the reason why I think the statistics were so high is because the only statistics they had were the ones that went through the court systems, you know? And the ones that hadn't sexually abused their children weren't in the court system, <laughs> you know. And and uh, so statistics can be really misleading. And, uh, you know, if you believe that you're going to be a certain way and people keep telling you, telling you, telling you, like you will be an alcoholic, you will be this, you will be that, or you are a whore or whatever, you know, um, it, it can get ingrained in you. Choices. We have choices. A lot of us didn't do that. We didn't inflict the pain and the abuse that was put on us and our children because we knew it was wrong. And our abusers knew it was wrong when they were hurting us. They had choices and they knew about it. And that's why I think that we need to continue and keep talking about this Mm -hmm. so that we're protecting the children and the young adults, the teenagers, because... They're abused too. Well, you, you're talking about it tonight. You're sharing your story, but so that we can protect them. The abuse is over for me now. So now I'm a warrior. I'm a survivor, and I'm also a warrior, just like you and your name, Victoria Kelly. I'm a warrior. We're all warriors now, and now we're fighting for those that don't have a voice because we know how. We all know what that feels like. We didn't have a voice, but we have a voice now, and we can help those that have no voice. And then Victoria, we're Victoria. Mm-hmm. We're overcomers. I'm, I'm sorry, Kelly is warrior, and Victoria is victorious. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're overcomers. All mm-hmm. of those words are, are all of what we are, so we are correct. Yeah. And I want to keep the spirit part because, you know, it was like, how did I survive all that? And and there was just, you know, my spirit was uh, fighting and fighting and fighting and saying, I'm going to live. I'm going to survive. You know, even with a tiny little voice. Um, and that was what helped me escape. Um, and going to the police and he was arrested and court ordered is all that happened. And his mom bailed him out. And I asked her why she bailed him out a couple of years later. And she said, well, he was going to lose his job. 
um, and that really hurt me. And I told her I felt like she betrayed me. And she said, I'll never betray you again. But every time I went to her house, she kept talking about how wonderful he was doing and how he had this great job and this and that and everything else. And I just stopped going over there because I realized how ill I was getting every time I left, you know. And I thought it was a decaf coffee. <laughs> I drink caffeinated coffee, you know. And I finally had to realize that it was because, you know, I was doing really crappy. You know, I was on a bunch of meds. I was in a psych ward. I was, you know, having difficulty functioning, even getting out of bed. I would stay in bed for weeks at a time. And uh, it, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot. And it was dissociating. I was um, developed MPD, multiple personality disorder, which is known as dissociative identity disorder. And uh, again, I'm just really grateful that, uh, I, I got the help that I did um, through professionals, community support, family, uh, friends, and uh, the community of NASCAR because I didn't really have a voice until I met uh, Bill Murray, the founder of NASCAR, and talked to him on the phone and came on the radio and, and started telling my story. Um, he invited me to tell my story on a show. And uh, go back to that story and hear me talk, I'm, I completely am... Um, have a different, um, you know, uh, level of growth where I was at back then. That's amazing. And that's why it is important for us to talk and share our stories and come forward because as we continue to show up for ourselves, we continue to allow others to see themselves being able to stand up and be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, we help strengthen other people by Mm -hmm. sharing our stories. So many people listen to our stories and they're able to relate. There's so many parts of you all stories that I listen to that I'm like, wow, oh, wow, 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 I went through that. So it's something about just knowing that you're not alone and knowing that there's a community of people. Um, Here in NASCAR, there's a community of people that can hear your story and support you and really can say, Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, and even though we haven't been through the exact same thing that you've experienced, because all of our stories are individually different, but we're able mm-hmm. to support each other, hold hands, uh, and really, really be here for each other and understand that we know what that pain feels like of just recovering and, and healing. Okay, yeah, thing. and for me, too, it was helping me to get the words to express my story, you know, because, like, when I first went to police, um, the police officer, and he asked me what happened this night when – all this came down, and I said, well, I went over to his house, and we made love. Well, that's what he made me call it, you know. And and the police officer stopped the tape, backed it up, says, I'm going to ask you that question a different way. And this is, you know, back in 86, you know, and uh, I mean 83. And he says, uh, when you went over to your dad's house, did you want to have sex with him? And I said, absolutely not, <laughs> you know. So that came out a different, just completely different way. Now, when I found out that rape was unwanted sex, I started calling what he did to me rape, you know, and and just to get the right words to explain instead of saying, you know, I got away from him or I left him, you know, I escaped from him. It's a different term and it means a lot. It's, you know, much more describes um, what um, happened and what is happening. Dr. Romo, do you have comments? 
I do. Um, and what I um, am thinking about is, like I mentioned this book called Trauma Stewardship. Of, of one of my patients said, hey, I bought this a while ago. You might be interested in it. And as I hear you know, everyone's comments, I, I think of these different areas that this author um, just points to that are really about recovery and healing. And, you know, the first one I was mentioned, you know, the questions like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and for you, like under, having a language, understanding trauma is understanding what, what happened to us. Um, and then I hear uh, several putting their attention somewhere, you know, other than you said when, you, when your dad passed, there was a sense of freedom. And that's really common for a lot of people. I mean, somehow our attention still gets carrying, you know, and focused on things that have happened to us. And maybe it's that hyper alertness, but um, when we can choose to put our attention into, you know, what is my plan A, what's my plan B? Um, And several have talked about, you know, what can I do to impact large scale change or help others so that others don't experience this? You know, so that action. Um, And then, you know, connecting with others, um, being grateful. uh, Bob talked about pounding the phone books. I mean, getting the energy to come through us. I mean, um, just hearing different pieces, and I appreciate, you know, we all have different experiences, but there's something to be gained. You know, maybe um, there's an insight that uh, each of us has for you know, one another or for whoever may be listening. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I think about uh, being, where am I putting my attention? You know, is much more, you know, of being present and much more appreciating. You mentioned uh, Victoria's spirit. You know, that's how you got, you got through so many things. Well, of course. Um, and that's not talking about a particular religion. Um and some people may have a very scientific description of you know, how we are the energy, you know, and we're a, a particle instead of a wave in this form, you know. But to, to understand ourselves differently than we did when we were victims or when we were surviving, and that to me moves us into being more whole, um, being more integrated. And to me, that's the spiritual journey. It's definitely where my um, attention is so that I can be uh, a good resource or witness or companion for others and and I can engage in systemic knowing that I have this insight that is rich and valuable you know, that was once you know a, a raw wound but you know now it's a scar now it's in fact there's an expression mm-hmm. following one who has no scars so I think mm-hmm. you are all worried thanks Warrior scars. <laughs> yeah. So we have um, two minutes left, Dr. Nancy. Do you have any other points you want to make quick? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, well, first of all, it's always an honor to be here serving with you all here on NASCA. Uh, you know, we have great resources on the website, NASCA.org. And uh, we have these shows during the week. I know we do uh, Zoom sessions, and Ms. Victoria can talk a little bit more about that. 
But um, I just want to, again, just remind people that you're not alone. You know, there are people who've been through this, who've been through abuse, who are in their journey of recovery. For me, I believe that recovery is a lifelong journey, and I'm constantly working on my recovery. And as I'm learning and continuing to grow in my recovery, I use that as a superpower to help others in their recovery. So for me, I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about helping others. I'm passionate about Really, I'm helping myself and I'm helping others. For me, it's a win-win situation. But, again, I just wanted to thank you all for um, for being strong and for sharing your stories tonight and for uniting and uh, sharing and being a voice for the voiceless. Thank you. Well, that's a perfect way to end, and we've just got a few seconds left here. Again, I want to thank Dr. Nancy for being my co-host and all the panel members, um, Philip, Dr. Romo, Judy, and Bill's on here too, and uh, Bob, who um, I haven't seen on anymore. But um, getting to the close, and I just want to thank everybody. And uh, I'm going to play the end music, and I hope you come back next time as well. Good night. Good night. I'm